welcome to another episode of Chic Compass Connection. This podcast will give you a glimpse into the window of the popular Chic Compass magazine, where we feature art, music, design, fashion, dining, and all things chic to the culturally starved audiences of the world. To view our magazine online, visit chiccompass.com. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-M-P-A-S-S dot com. I'm your host, Sherman Ray. Let's introduce today's guest. Let me give you a little background on D-Train. So D-Train is a uh, singer, songwriter, instrumentalist, producer, philanthropist, uh, good-looking guy because he's got a, a goatee and bald head like somebody I know. And uh, not, not, you know, not somebody I know personally, unless you're just looking at me. Uh, but um, also, uh, he made his uh, debut back in the 80s and throughout the years uh, has come up with some just fantastic uh, music. And we're going to talk a little bit about it uh, here in just a second. Let me let me bring him on here, okay, uh, folks. Uh, Mr. James Nelson Williams or D Train uh, coming onto the show. Uh, D Train, how are you doing today? I am good, Sherman. How are you this day, man? How are you feeling this morning? I'll tell you, I'm treat. This is a treat today. This is really <laughs> a treat. Um, so, um, so do you like people to call you D Train or 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 James, or what would you like me to call you? Well, my legal name now, since I've changed it, is D-Train, so that I own it all. I own the trademark. Oh, my God. And so what I did was I changed my name legally once I moved to Nevada to D-Train, so that legacy I could leave for my grandchildren. Isn't that cool? <laughs> so you are, you're just, you're D-Train. Um, well, so, so how did you, um, so let's start from the beginning. Um, sure. And um, how did you get the uh, the name D-Train? Well, you know, it started when I was playing football. It, it actually is the name of the subway system in New York City, um, in which I would take from my mom's house to school. Uh, we would get off at Church Avenue, and that was where Erasmus High School was. Mm -hmm. uh, I started playing high school football in like about the 11th grade uh, when I was a junior. And I had to... And we went to summer camp. We went to football camp upstate in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And all the seniors who were graduating were like going to all these Ivy League colleges, some of them going to B schools. And mm -hmm. When you got a hit up against these guys, it was the first day of hitting practice. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, man, you got to put the helmets and the pads on. And, you know, sure. so it was the first day of hitting practice. And I had to psych myself out because I did not want to be on the bench. <laughs> so I was like... <laughs> no, no, and no, I was no. acting crazy and they were laughing at me and they were like oh this kid has lost his mind maybe mm -hmm. he's so afraid he's scared of us and then when they, when I hit them and I got they, they ran a play my way I got in the backfield I knocked the, the, the uh, fullback back, back down he was um he was a, he was in shock so then everybody got they said run that play again mm -hmm. so they ran it again and then they pulled the guard and the tackle Yes. And I split the both of them and hit the, the fullback into the quarterback. And that was when they started calling me D-Train. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And the name stuck. And the name stuck. And when I got into the music industry, mm -hmm. um, 
upon meeting Hubert Eves through Will Downing, uh, okay. who was a high school buddy of mine. Will was captain of the bowling team. I was the defensive captain of the football team. Mm-hmm. And um, so after I graduated, Will said, D, will you come sing on the demo for me? I said, sure. Uh, I went to the studio out there, Sound Lab Studios okay. in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hubert Eves came in as I was in the booth singing. And he was eating Chinese food. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, he heard me singing. He put the Chinese food down, left the chopsticks changed. <laughs> like, um, but Hubert's cool because Hubert's yeah. like real mellow. So mm-hmm. I didn't think, you know, anything. I didn't know who he was. I just knew he was Hubert so, Eves. So who was, Hubert Eves at, who, were, who was Hubert Eves at the time? I mean, for those at the time, Yeah, at the time, Hubert was coming out of the M2 May camp. Okay. Uh, the James M. Toomey camp, Reggie Lucas. Uh, he had played on so many hits like um, You Are My Starship, Norman Connors. You that's Hubert on keyboards. Yeah. The, um, um, the Closer I Get to You, Donny Hathaway, Roberta oh, yeah. Flack. That's Hubert. Um, you know, so he played on a bunch of Donny and Roberta stuff for him, Toomey and Reggie. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Hubert's just been around the block a couple of times. And sure. at the time we met, I was 19 okay. and he was about 30 Okay, or sure. 29. You know? So were you were you like in awe of him when you first met him or when you thought that or, or, or like you were saying, you just didn't know really who he was? I just didn't know who he was because this was my second time in a recording studio. My first time was when I was 15 years old. I went to the studio in Manhattan with the late Reverend Timothy Wright, who had the concert choir. And uh, he had to get permission from my mom for me to be out of school that day. He was like, Sister Smith, the James come on down to the studio and sing for me. Yes, <laughs> so I went to the studio and mm-hmm. I sang a song called The Victories and the Praise, mm-hmm. which wound up being a big hit amongst gospel circles in the New York life. Mm-hmm. And um, that was my first session. So when I met Hubert, I didn't really know about his history. I just knew he was a producer and it was my second time in a professional recording studio. Mm -hmm. So when I left the studio and I said my goodbyes, Will called me later. He's like, man, you don't know. Let me tell you. You You don't know. You You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. Yo, G. Yo, yo, he was blown away, man. Here's his number. He wants you to call him tomorrow. Come by his house. So I went by his house the next day. And uh, he had a track up on his, you know, the little quarter inch reel to reel. And he's like, yo, man, it's a pleasure meeting you. I enjoyed your voice, man. And I, I'm writing this song that I'd like to see if what you, your thoughts are. He said, but I only got a chorus, man. I said, okay, play it for me. So he played it. And it was, and he said, I'll stand up on the cloud and shout out loud. You're the one for me. He said, that's all I got, man. I I don't, I don't, I don't know anything else. I said, okay, we'll play it again. So I just said, let it play, loop it, loop it for me. And you couldn't do that back in the days with tapes, but he yeah. had wrote a, a long thing, and he had, and this is before sequencers and all that stuff. So yeah. he had a nine-minute version, a ten-minute version of the song. So I said, oh man, give me a pad, give me a pad, give me a pen, and I started writing. We oh, just so love the, the my pals, takes my feet up off the ground to fly away. We wrote that song within an hour. So the and, juices uh, were flowing, huh? Oh, yeah. And the rest is history. We wrote Keep On that day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, and then, you know, we kept writing and writing and writing. 
And the way we wrote together, it just flowed. Isn't that amazing? I'll tell you. So for those of you who are just joining us right now, I'm speaking to uh, D-Train, folks. And uh, just uh, we're going to talk about his early life and try to get a little bit more of what he's doing right now. Um, this is this is a treat. This is really a treat. And I hope you stick around for the, the entire broadcast. So uh, D-Train, let's 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 back up because you were telling me a little bit about Hubert and um, and some of the things that uh, that just happened when you were about 19. Let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about your early days. OK, because I was I was looking um, that you actually started your, you know, your singing career while you were in church. Yeah, six years old. Washington mm-hmm. Temple Church of God in Christ, where Bishop Washington was the founder and pastor, and Madam Ernestine B. Washington was the first lady. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you a know, question I, about that. Why is that so special to you in context to your life right now? Why is that part of it so important? Well, when we, when anybody left the church, I was, I grew up Church of God in Christ. Yeah. Kojic, Pentecostal. Kojic. Sure. Yeah. So. When anyone left the church to pursue a career, especially in music, mm. you had to get permission from the pastor to go out in the world, as they say. You in know. the world, um, yes. I had those that went before me, um, and it didn't fare too well for them. The first one was Sammy Fletcher, okay. and he went out in the 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. out in L.A., and he wound up getting on drugs and stuff like that. Sure. And then the second one was Ronnie Dyson, who was my choir director Mm -hmm. uh, in Washington Temple when Reverend Timothy Wright was there. And Mm -hmm. Ronnie went out there and he had, if you let me make love to you, then why can't I touch you? And, you know, unfortunately, most of us, yeah, most of us who knew Ronnie, he did well. He was working with the Spinners. He was on tour for a while. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you know, somewhere along the lines, the drugs came in because Back in those days, you, he was hiding, you know, the fact that he was, you know, gay and that he didn't want to let the world know. Mm. So what happened was he was hiding his sexuality because you didn't do that back in the 70s. That's true. And um, he started doing heroin and wow. um, to numb the pain of that. And so what happens is um, doing the heroin and stuff like that, he, um, he wound up dying as a heroin addict. You know, mm, yeah. so when it came my time to do the thing and do the exit, you know, mm-hmm. I had I'd already made a name for myself in New York circles okay. uh, with Reverend Timothy Wright. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what happens is I was ready to go. Um, we got the record deal with Prelude up on 57th Street with Marvin Schlachter and Stan Hoffman. Mm-hmm. And because Hubert had taken the demo of You're the One for Me to several labels, to Columbia, to Arista, to Atlantic, yeah, all of them hated my voice. Really? He can't sing. You need what? to get a girl. He sing too loud. He sing too hard. You need to get a girl. Maybe <laughs> you can get a guy with a softer voice. I mean, every excuse so in the book you had came too much, up with. You were too loud <laughs> singing too hard. <laughs> and they thought a girl should do it. So oh, I said, goodness. okay. So, you know, you accept what it is, but Prelude was the first one that opened their doors to us. Yeah. Um, they were the hottest dance label at the time. They had mm-hmm. Franz Jolie, who was the queen mm-hmm. up at Prelude. Um, you had Unlimited Touch with Audrey Wheeler, mm-hmm. you know, and Lenny, Lenny, um, oh God, what is Lenny's last name? I can't think of Lenny's name, but anyway, um, 
Lenny Underwood. And so they were, you know, unlimited touch and Sharon James. And so, and they were like hot and the strikers and the Nick strikers band, Jocelyn Brown was signed to prelude. Wow. You know, so when we got there, we just was like glad to be on a label. You know, sure. we didn't know what, I didn't know what it entailed in the eighties was such a different time. Eighties was a time where when you go to a record company, guys who wanted to get a record deal, you'd see like two rows out in the hallway with guys sitting with crates of records. Oh, crates of records. Waiting sure. to go inside to see the executives to pray to God that they would listen to them, you yes. know? And um, it was interesting back in those days because you had to work real hard. It was a lot yeah. harder than it is now. Well, um, well, it's funny because you mentioned that because I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I, so, I, so I'm actually a year older than you. So I'm just one oh, year okay. old. So I remember these years very well. Um, uh -huh. You're talking about how hard it was to come up in the industry. Um, was it that hard because there was so much talent out there? Because to me, the 70s and 80s were when you had tons of music out there, tons of talent. And mm -hmm. it and, and that's when, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire, you know, oh, yeah. bands like that. It was To me, that was the best. I stopped listening to music, to tell you the truth. <laughs> After the 80s, well, no, I'm not even listening to music. So, do you think that's why it was during the time when you were coming through that that's why it was such a tough time? Well, you know, it really wasn't tough if you had the skills. They had something on every radio station across the country yeah. called Make It or Break It. Make It or Break It, sure. I know you remember that. So, yeah, sure. if your record was hot and they dug it at radio stations, it didn't matter whether it was New York, Texas, LA, yeah. you made it. If yeah. they broke it, you were never heard from again. Because <laughs> we didn't have we didn't yeah. have videos, we didn't have MTV, we didn't have VH1, no. and so what happens is your music had to stand on its own. And most of the music that was produced back in those days, we didn't have sequences, we didn't have drum machines. We had live drummers, we had live keyboard players who were skilled mm -hmm. at their craft. You had to know music. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know music. I couldn't read it or write it, but I could interpret it because I grew up in church where they teach you the song on Friday night. You got to sing it on Sunday morning. Uh, well, so I'm I'm a, I'm a worship team leader now, so I, I'm dealing okay. with that now. <laughs> so you know, you know how that rolls. You sure. know how that rolls. You got yeah. to work, you know. You learn it and you better note on Sunday morning verbatim. First mm -hmm. verse, last verse, and everything in between in the vamp yes. section. Because those vamp sections went on for hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. But um, those were the skills that brought me into the music industry. Al Sharpton was my uh, my junior church minister. Was he really? So I grew up with Ronnie Dyson and Al Sharpton. Isn't that funny? Now, are you yeah. ever in contact with uh, Al Sharpton now? I did um, Harlem Week a few years later after my career began yeah. uh, with Al Sharpton. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I haven't kept in touch with him since he's become Reverend Al. You he's know, because we just Al, called yeah. him. He hate, he would probably hate hearing from me now because I still call him Alfred. Alfred! Alfred! <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, he probably, but he, I don't think he mind because he would remember, he'd remember Washington he Temple. Remember Anybody him. that called him Alfred, he know where they come from. That was home. This home. That was home. Yeah. So, yeah. so for those of you who are just listening to us right now, we're speaking with uh, D Train, um, and he's a philanthropist. He's a musician. Oh, gosh, 
jingles. We're going to talk about jingles in just a minute here because I, I saw in your bio that you've actually written some jingles here. I want to see if I can rack your brain and see if you remember any of the jingles that you've written. Um, but um, we're really in for a treat today. So, D-Train, let me ask you about your early influencers, people mm-hmm. who actually influenced your musical style. Um, and everybody's got them. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. you were talking about people who came out of the church and then went into the world and, and sang. Um, were there people inside the church that influenced your music or were there people on the outside? Oh, absolutely. The most? So give us a sense of that. Yeah. Um, growing up in the church, my big influences were James Cleveland, the Clark sisters out of Chicago, Twinkie Club, and Dorinda sure. and all of them. They was just a beast. Uh, Lamont Lennox and Queenie Lennox out of Chicago from the Lennox family. They were like monsters in the gospel world. Um, yeah. And I really enjoyed them. In fact, part of my vocal style I adopted from Lamont. Don't tell him. No, we'll tell him. <laughs> but my yeah. favorite, when I got into the business, over anybody was DJ Rogers. Um, yes. But then I developed my own style um, with, with Hubert's help. Uh, in the early years, he said, man, just be yourself, man. He said, what I'm going to mm-hmm. do, he said, musically, I'm going to build you a pulpit to preach in. Oh, okay. And after a while, I'm going to leave you in that pulpit, and it'll be your church. And that's the way he put it to me. And I said, okay. So wow. by the third album, Something's On Your Mind, we had already had hits like, we had already done Soul Train five times in two countries. We oh did four God. times with Don Cornelius in LA. Mm-hmm. And then we did one time when Don was trying to expand in London with Jeffrey Daniels. Mm-hmm. Um, we had done Top of the Pops four times in England. Um, you know, so it was, you know, we were voted best R&B artist in 1983 at the first, at the third annual R&B Music Awards with Kashif. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. But but a lot of my influences came from those early years, the spinners. When I played football, Mm -hmm. all I listened to in football camp was, uh, the spinners. They had the album Mighty Love out at the time with the lion on it. Oh, man, I listened to that thing for three hours driving to camp, and that thing got me through football camp. Oh, yeah. And I sang it on the bus all the way up there and all the way back home to Brooklyn, man. So I had many great influences, Gladys Knight, the Pips, Mm -hmm. you know, people that I could see on television, Um, and even the comedian people like Flip Wilson. You know, we had Soul (laughs) Alive with Curtis Hayslip, you know, where I got to see the five stair steps with QB. And my father would take me to the Apollo Theater on Wednesday nights. Um, he told my mother, he said, you can have more Sunday morning, but Wednesday night, he's mine. <laughs> so he would take so let's, me let's up talk to about that. So talk, uh, talk about the Apollo. So that that's funny because now what year? Give us an idea of what year that would be. We're talking like be. 1974 through 78. Okay. So it's still going fairly strong. Yeah. What? What's it like going to the Apollo? Who did you see? And how did that influence? Do you think that influenced you as, a, as an artist? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the Five Stair Steps had to hit Old Child. Okay. I think it was either 73 or 74. We went to see them. And, and at the Apollo, you get to see two matinees. You see a kiddie matinee for the kids. Mm-hmm. And then there was an adult movie. And then okay. there was an intermission. And everybody went outside to the vendor's 
on 125th Street, and you bought a hamburger or a hot dog for the kids, then you went back inside, and then the show was starting at 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And I saw the five stair steps, and well, the Delphonics were the headliners. Black Ivory was the opening act. Wow. Then it was the Delphonics, and then it was the five stair steps, the QB, mm-hmm. the baby brother. And man, when they got to the five stair steps, oh my God, my sisters jumped up and ran down the aisles. That was when girls could get up out their seats and run down the aisles. <laughs> I watched all three of us just jump up and run. And my father didn't care because we was in the theater. He just yeah. let them run down there with the other kids. And they were screaming at the stage. And what happened was when you watch Silk Sonic do their steps and New Edition and all of those, I know where that comes from. Oh yeah. And I was sitting there with the Temptations when they had the circular microphones. Mm-hmm. And the, the Temptations could do steps around the circular microphone and not bump into each other. Mm-hmm. Now that sure. took skill, brother. Yes, that was yes. skill. And and it was amazing to watch as a kid. Um, you know, the Nicholas brothers okay. who came from uptown in Harlem. Oh, yeah. You know, you watch the movies. That's with them. That's, oh yeah. So we would, you know, my dad, um, my dad kept us involved and, and kept his pulse on the, the music scene. Once he found out that I could sing, he put me in guitar school. Okay. And I started taking guitar lessons at 10 years old. Yeah. Now, I stayed in yourself, until I was 15. Now, would you call yourself a jazz guitar, uh, guitar player? Or would you easy, call yourself yeah. a lead? Yeah. Yeah, easily a jazz guitarist. Yeah. And um, I quit when I was 16 because I wanted to play football. Okay. So, yeah. you're, I, so I, I, you know. And I wanted to, you know, date girls. And that's when the girls come around and you're like, okay, well, oh guitar, girls, guitar, girls. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You're sure. trying to figure it out. And then, uh, you know, it was great, man. It was good years because the 70s, as dark as they were mm. in terms of the streets. Yeah. Because on 125th Street, you had a lot of drugs. Okay. You had yeah. a lot of drugs. Yeah. Uh, so- on 42nd Street was like pimp haven. Mm. I mean, drug and pimp haven. Sure. You go to see the Kung Fu movies and the drug dealers would just walk out the door with, yo, man, I got that weed, man, got that weed. Yo, yo, yo. You know, and yes, if, a dude, if there was a fight, if the police beat somebody down like a Rodney King, they would leave the body there on the sidewalk, walk over him, go to Nathan's across the street, buy hot dogs and coffee, come back, cross over the body again, oh, and go stand on and do their beat, man. That's the way it was in the that's 70s. That's the way it was. So do you think music kept you off of the streets, that it was um, one of those things that just... I was- would say music and church. Okay. Church, absolutely. Because until I turned 16 and started playing football, my whole life from birth, from six months old, Till then, it was church. Yeah. Period. It was, you know, because when I got into the concert choir, Monday night we had rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Friday night was broadcast. We were on WWRL in New York um, at 10 o'clock. Yeah. Saturday night, some church or other would be having a back-home hour with singers when mm-hmm. we'd show up and we'd sing with them. Sunday morning, morning service, broadcast again. Then you stay in church all day long till yes. six o'clock, youth meeting, you know, 
Sure. Uh, testimony service. Then eight o'clock was evening service. Mm-hmm. Ten, nine o'clock was the evening broadcast on WWRL. And if that wasn't enough church for you on a Sunday, we would leave our church at 10 o'clock and go down to Institutional Church of God in Christ where Hezekiah Walker and them kids, they were little babies. Hezekiah Walker, James Cleveland, uh, John Hastings singers, they were all down there. So it was like, they called it a back home hour, but they were doing their broadcast at 11. So we tried to make their broadcast so we would hang out with their young people. We went, I'd wind up getting home at midnight on Sunday. You need to write a book. You need to write a book about this. You really do. Because these, these, the memories you're talking about, the stuff you're talking about, are people will go, oh my gosh, I remember that. I remember oh, yeah. that. Those are part of my growing up years and, uh, and just fond memories. Let's, so we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to, I want to definitely talk more about what your, your middle years. Now, did you spend any much time in Europe? Um, and spent a lot of time in Europe. Um, what was it like? after what was the, the, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, around 1988, mm-hmm. you know, we did In Your Eyes, our second album on Columbia. We, our first album was Miracles of the Heart. Um, in Your Eyes became a big radio hit. Um, we had Oh, I Love You Girl from the other stuff. But In Your Eyes wound up being top five on all the radio playlists around the country behind Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel. Mm. But Columbia Records, that was when I started learning about the music industry. Michael Jackson came out with Thriller. So what happens is when you got a hit artist, all the attention is diverted to him. And then every artist that was on the label gets shelved. And all the money goes to Michael and you become the tax write-off. So, and Michael became the hit artist and everybody else and Two Made Juicy Fruit, they went gold. Um, But Michael went platinum and triple platinum because that's where Columbia was putting their money. So in 88, um, New Jack Swing came in Mm. with Teddy Riley, Keith Sweat. I won. Um, And and so when that whole thing came out, I went over to Europe, man, because nobody was playing my records anymore and nobody wanted me for gigs over here anymore because my music wasn't timely. Of that yeah. time, because, you know, you get your 15 minutes and then you out uh, in America. We tolerate artists after their time is through, whereas in Europe, they treat you like gold for the rest of your life. Really so do. I went over to France and I worked in France from like, I want to say from like 88 through 91, all the while doing jingles here in America. So I would work here in America doing sessions. I became a session singer doing jingles for, um, you know, um, I did the touch to feel the fabric of our lives. Did you Touch really? to feel the cotton, cotton fabric of our lives. And then I did, you like milk and it shows. It does the body good. You like milk and it shows. Strong, healthy bones. Um, and my biggest commercial was, I'll be all that you can be. In the army. Oh my gosh! Did and you that was really? one of many. And then I went on to become the voice of Pokemon, the television series. Um, mm-hmm. I would sing the theme song at the end of the show for mm-hmm. three years. Um, you know, I was like 150 or more to be. You be a Pokemon master is my destiny. And um, 
you know, I got to work on albums. I be, I, I got deep in the session world singing behind Natalie Cole yes. on uh, Snowfall on the Sahara. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, got to work with Meatloaf on Bad Out of Hell too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, worked with a bunch of uh, different artists. Worked with Michael Jackson on Invincible, okay. um, which he replaced us with Andre Crouch. Yeah. I did Luther Vandross's Dance with My Father, on which a song Marcus Miller wrote called yeah. She Saw You. Yes. Um, and worked with Mary J. Blige on the tour. So it was like a lot of work. And then, you know, for three years later on, after I came back to America in, I want to say, 2001, I got my own radio show on Sirius Satellite Radio. Mm-hmm. And for seven and a half years, I remained at, from 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock, uh, the D-Train show. The D-Train show. Wow. And I was on playing music all day long, doing interviews. I interviewed Jet Li from uh-huh. Hong Kong. I had Lionel Richie. I had, you know, Angie Stone, Shaka Khan, all of them up there. But that was the place that I learned how to listen. Yeah. See, sure. Because as musicians, we're so used to talking over each other because we mm-hmm. always in the conversation. Sure. But when you do radio, you got to shut up and let the artist speak. Yes. And then when they're finished, then you speak because they cut it up into different drops and stuff. Sure. So I'm learning, you know, I had to learn how to listen. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after that, uh, 2012, I was invited by my friend Rob Mathis to work at the Kennedy Center Honors for Barack Obama. And so we sang behind everybody from 2012 to 2014 uh, at the Kennedy Center Honors uh, every year. I was invited back to work with Usher, you know, Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, Garth Brooks, Lady Gaga. Uh, I mean, it was just so many of them. Billy Joel tributes and a Sting tributes. And what was really funny it's funny, we did a Billy Joel tribute at uh, the Kennedy Center Honors. Earlier this year in May, I opened up for Billy Joel in Greenwich, Connecticut. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. And I'm sitting there looking at Billy on stage, I'm going, wow. Funny how time brings things back around, you know? Right, right around, you know. Back around, and then Sting, it's funny, I do co- Christmas concerts in New York every year with Rob Mathis, who's a brilliant arranger, for yeah. so many big artists like um, like Billy Joel's. He did Sting on Broadway. He did Bruce Springsteen's movie, Northern Lights. So we've been doing Christmas concerts every year for 27 years with Vanessa Williams uh, up at Purchase College. So the great thing about it was one, one Christmas, about two years back, we're sitting there and we're getting ready to do, go on stage and Sting walks in mm-hmm. and he has his bass with him and he says, Think I could play? I know that's it. I'm thinking. Like, do you think you could play? Are you asking us? Are you telling us? You know what I mean? Take your bass out and do your thing. You know? So the second half, he played a lullaby from Ireland. And then the year after that, he came on in the whole second half of our show. And our segment was uh, around Sting and his music. And it was great. We've had Michael McDonald come Mm -hmm. in as a guest artist. We had um, David Sanborn. And, and that's been wonderful over the years. Um, I have a new album on the way out, okay. uh, coming out in uh, probably October this year. Mm-hmm. The single will be dropping on September 29th. It is entitled Walls. 
And it's about when I was traveling to West Germany to Berlin. But when you had to go to Berlin, you had to travel through East Germany in the 80s. There were six checkpoints like that looked like toll booths. At each checkpoint, they got on the bus and they made you open up all your road cases because they thought you were carrying children in it from East Germany to West Germany or Berlin. Mm. And at each checkpoint, they had a different way to kill you. They had machine guns. They had walls that moved. All types of stuff. So I wanted to write about the walls that came down in 1989 in November. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When those walls from East Germany and West Germany broke down, people came to know each other. And yes. those walls that existed between black people and white people in America today, when COVID-19 came and started killing people, mm-hmm. there were no more walls. It wasn't about whether you were black, white, green, or purple. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be another resurrection, too. I People may think I'm crazy, but I think when the aliens finally get here, it ain't going to be about whether you're black or white. It's going to be about whether you're human. Whether you're human. Isn't that amazing? See, you know, we've been fighting for our humanity for the past 300 years, and we still haven't achieved it, even in today's society, with billionaires like Oprah Winfrey and Jay-Z and, you know, um, you know, uh, what's now his name? Had the Beats headphones, Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre, sure. Even at that level, you still get called the N-word. Oprah went into a, a Saks Fifth Avenue store, and they thought she was trying, trying to steal the purse. And they, they didn't realize and acknowledge this woman's the billionaire, Oprah Winfrey. That wouldn't happen to Rupert Murdoch. No, no. You know? That, yeah. It, uh, well, I, I think you got, I think you're on to something there. Let's, uh, in the time we have left, you've got some new stuff coming out. Um, we'll yeah. talk briefly about that um, when we're leading up to the show. Uh, give us an idea of what you're going to be doing now, because I know you're heading out of town like tomorrow. You're on Absolutely. So, so I'm getting ready to do... Uh, this weekend, I'm going to Soltasia in London, England. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in Garron Park. And uh, we'll be over there with Evelyn Champagne King mm-hmm. doing our thing. Nice. And then I come back to New York where I'll be honored at the Legends of Vinyl Awards mm-hmm. uh, in September. Uh, and it's going to be a great show where they're going to honor me, Denny Ontario. Mm-hmm. We used to have Dance Fever back in the day. Fever, and sure. Lou Graham of Foreigner. I want to know what love is That's for all of those voices. people that didn't know. Great love. voices there, yes. Oh, yeah. So we're going to be honored in September. Uh, October, um, nothing's happening, but November, I'll be in Lyon, France, uh, over there with those great guys. And then back in New York in December, doing the concerts with Rob Mathis and those great people in New York. Well, we got you. We got to keep up with you. So when you're back here in Vegas... That we can keep up with you because I know you just finished here in Vegas, and uh, we were and we were just we just missed you. But I want to be be sure to get the word out prior to you coming back to Vegas, um, so we can get as many people in there uh, and uh, to check you because, folks, if you want to hear some great things, this is where you want to D train. I'll tell you, you, you brought some memories, memories. Oh, memories. thank you. And I'm so excited about you being on the show. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you now, though, but if people probably want to get a hold of you. How would they get a hold of you now? Um, go to all aboard the D train at facebook.com okay. and also the official D train.com. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. D 
D-Train. Thank you so much for being on Chi Compass, um, where, you know, where we just bring these great names to you. Thank you so much for this. Have a Thanks wonderful trip. Me, man. And um, <laughs> it's great. It's been great meeting you. And we'll Sherman, man, we got to we got to get together, man, and you know, kick okay. it. I know. I think so. This is gonna be fun. All right. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll talk soon. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Have a nice one. Have a blessed weekend, man. You too. Bye bye. Take care. You've been listening to Sheet Compass Connections podcast. To learn more about Sheet Compass magazine, visit sheetcompass.com. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-M-P-A-S-S dot com. This has been Sherman Ray for Chic Compass Connections Podcast. Thanks for listening.